Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. It's really exciting for me to be able to introduce Jan Egelon. Um, I had the pleasure of knowing I was going to have this opportunity and ran out uh, actually last week and was able to get his book, A Billion Lives, and am well into it. And um, I encourage you all to grab it uh, because uh, the book reflects a life of clear passion. You could not be someone who uh, was not very clear in your life's goals, in your focus, and also in your resolve about right and wrong and go lead this kind of a life. Uh, When most of us are concerned to travel to countries where the United States Travel Advisory encourages us not to go, we have no conception of the real difficult matters on world affairs. The idea of a warlord to us is either something that's covered in a column in the New York Times or it's a bad movie. The legitimacy in sitting down and negotiating with warlords on their turf about issues that are critical to their economic wherewithal and thus obviously of all those around them takes a, um, I don't know what all it takes, it takes a chutzpah, it takes um, uh, determination and again incredible values. Um, So um, Jan Egelon has been called, we'd all love to be called this one, the world's conscience. Um, and uh, is recognized as one of the most hundred influential people of our time by Time Magazine. He has been the public face of the United Nations as Undersecretary for General Humanitarian Affairs. He was in charge of the Office of Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OSHA, for three and a half years. He has traveled to over a hundred countries, but you know, you could you know, toss in Sweden and, and, and a few Scandinavian countries in there. More um, uh, interesting are Darfur, Eastern Congo, Lebanon, Gaza, Northern Israel, Northern Uganda, and Colombia, all at points of great turmoil. Um, before going to the United Nations, he was an undersecretary and special, uh, no, excuse me, as part of the United Nations, he was a special envoy for war-torn Colombia. But before that time, he was a Norwegian Secretary of Foreign Affairs in the 1990s and thus was able to um, bring the Oslo Accord together in 1993. And now he is the Director General of the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, the most significant uh, international think tank in Norway. And its significance goes beyond Norway. Jan was explaining to me a minute ago that they have the great uh, freedom of being a country that's not seen with a significant agenda. 
they're limited because they can't wield the aggressive power of the United States, but within their limitation comes their legitimacy and their acceptance at many international tables. So at our table today, welcome to Dallas. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Lucy. It's very good to be here in um, Dallas, Texas. Indeed, uh, when I left the office in my previous life as, a, as the emergency relief coordinator for the world, my professional counterparts, I mean the people I met were warlords, dictators, uh, guerrilla leaders, mass murderers. When I now leave the office, I meet very nice people like you <laughs> who, uh, who seem to like me, whom I like. The warlords didn't like me. I didn't like them. Uh, it, it, uh, believe me, it was much more difficult. Now, <clears throat> uh, I've been here before. I was just telling at, at the table. Um, I was here the first time when I was 18 years old. I saw on television screen in Norway uh, one late night as a 17-year-old, a Catholic priest out of Colombia, Latin America, saying we'd like to see European youth coming here to war-torn Colombia to help in, in my social justice work. I had uh, learned Spanish. I sent him a letter. He said, yes, come. So we were three Norwegian um, high school graduates who flew to Canada. I remember there was the cheapest possible way of getting over the Atlantic. We took a Greyhound to Chicago. We bought a, 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 an old station wagon for $1,000, and we drove it 30,000 miles to Panama, going through, among other places, Texas, Highway 10, <laughs> going west, so I've been to the Alamo 31 years ago for the first time. <laughs> now, why write this book? I think the impulse really was the goodbye interviews that I did, because I did, I did thousands of interviews uh, as the public face of, of the UN for international humanitarian work, and in the goodbye interviews, the standard question of the CNN and the BBC and the uh, Al Jazeera and the Agence France Presse was always, okay, after all of this, do you leave depressed or do you leave very depressed? And I, you know, said, you, ha I, you, you must have misunderstood me. I leave an optimist because I saw more often than not that we succeeded when when the world went together, came together, as I'll give some examples of, we always succeeded. It was when we did not come together as a United Nations, as, as United Partners, that's when we failed. Of course, the, it started in the most dramatic fashion. I, I, I wanted to just show you some of the images from the book that I also uh, talk about in the book. So I land at Newark Airport. It's the 19th of August 2003, and I'm going to have the first briefings to take over this job. 
Um, when, we count, when I come to deliver my passport, there is a long line. And there are these television monitors, and there are breaking news. And the breaking news is that the UN headquarters in Baghdad, Iraq, is bombed. And before I, I come to, to customs, uh, they tell us and me that my predecessor in the job and good friend, Sergio Vieira de Mello, is dead. And 21 other colleagues, including several from my own, the organization that I was to lead. It was the bleakest moment of the UN since our start. We never lost 22 unarmed uh, colleagues in that way before. And to me, it was a reminder that, you know, I, I, I came to the job to help the civilians to survive in war zones, not to help our own relief workers to survive. And it shows how dramatically the world is changing and that new threats and challenges arise. I was sent by, by uh, uh, Kofi Annan. Why don't... There you go. Uh, on my first mission, mission to uh, Baghdad to see whether we could hang by, you know, hang by our fingernails in, in Baghdad. Uh, there was another bomb the week before I came on this mission, and there was another bomb against the Red Cross just after I left. It was impossible. I describe, you know, how, how I fought for us to stay on. The other colleagues in the UN felt this was not our war, this was not our problem, we shouldn't be there. I felt that if, you know, able-bodied international men leave in the lifeboats and leave the local women and children behind, it's not what the UN was all about. But the threats were new and they were different in a world that was changing, not to the worse, actually to the better, but the threats were different. Okay, so this was how the job started, but my own uh, work started much before when I, in Colombia, arriving after Texas and all, to work with an Indian tribe that this priest had helped survive the first meetings with uh, developers and others who wanted their jungle, where they were living, uh, hunting with the bow and arrow still. Uh, they, they were wonderful people. Uh, I, I was the strangest creature they had ever seen. Uh, and, and I remember at one point they asked me, you must have a lot of headaches. And I asked, why? Because looking the, at the world in blue must be very painful. <laughs> so um, these people... I, I show this image also because the painful experience was that 25 years later, they were all scattered all over the place because the war had, the war had come to even, even their corner of the jungle. And of course, this man is part of it. Actually, the, the two men in the center, if you like. The man in the light blue jacket 
called Manuel Marulanda. He's the leader of the, of the FARC, the largest guerrilla movement in the Western Hemisphere, one of the largest in the world. He has been fighting continuously since 1948 in the civil war between the liberals and the conservatives, and he formed these, this guerrilla movement in 1963. They are still fighting. At this point, we had a peace process going. The UN helped make it happen. We had negotiations between guerrillas and the government. This is the president's uh, <clears throat> advisor who's in the yellow shirt. The FARC rejected the offer of a, of, of a compromise agreement. The government did not help because they did a, they did a very lousy, uh, lousy process. The man to the extreme right in the, in the uh, green uniform is Raul Reyes, who was killed Saturday, 10, 12 days ago, in the Colombian incursion into Ecuador, which led to the whole uh, new tension between Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador. In, so one of the things I offer is the following. We shouldn't allow within our Western Hemisphere, a war to go on for 45 years. Because every single year, tribes like the Motilones, my friends, and innocent civilians has been caught in this crossfire. And there are more people displaced over this period of years than in Darfur or, 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 or in, uh, or, or, or in uh, Uganda or, 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 or all of these other horrific conflicts. Now, um, for me, peace work systematically started when I became the Deputy Foreign Minister of Norway. And what I saw was that we had, uh, as our little Norway, built up trust and confidence among, among enemies on both sides of the divide. And one of the places was the Middle East. So I... I, I did with three colleagues, the two colleagues uh, that are next to me on my left, Norwegians, and the foreign minister sitting at, in the middle at the table, we organized the famous Norwegian channel between Israel, Yishak Rabin, Shimon Peres, of the Israeli Labour Party, whom we had very close relations, and the PLO whom we had also established relations with when they were in Tunis. This is uh, one of the few photographs that exist taken by the Norwegian uh, security police, uh, there is such a thing, uh, taken uh, in the middle of the night. Uh, there were 20 people uh, present. Three weeks later, of course, Bill Clinton is doing the big... Um, the big uh, swing with arms, and uh, Arafat and Rabin have the historic handshake. It did not go as we had hoped. I mean, we, 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 were able, we were able to bring many things forward. Um, I remember Shimon Peres said, Gaza will be the Singapore of the Middle East. Because there, there's a lot of people who have gotten schooled there, etc. It's possible to do things. Uh, we jointly did a big industrial Israeli-Palestinian industrial park 
at the Ares crossing point. But of course, uh, the enemies of peace became too strong. There were a lot of terror acts. Uh, Arafat himself did a strategic mistake of enormous consequences to allow Hamas and Jihad to blossom, at the same time as Israel continued with the settlements and all of the things that are the provocations vis-a-vis the other side. I've always felt in my many years of, of international work that, listen, especially where it's sensitive, like in the Middle East, which I know well. I have studied at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. I have many Israeli friends. I have many Palestinian friends. I have many Jordanian friends, Lebanese friends. We have to speak the truth as we see it, as we smell it, as we, as we hear it. Now, of course, the Lebanese war is, is one of these examples of the situation getting totally out of control and suddenly, two million civilians are embroiled in something that, 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 that where, where, where military people um, do not control the situation. So here, Hezbollah have a raid into Israel. They abduct people. Israel then retaliates militarily. Hezbollah sends terror missiles into Israel. Israel starts to bomb a number of strategic goals. There is a lot more missiles. There is a lot more bombing. And suddenly, hundreds of thousands of people in northern Israel are, are, are terrorized. And 1.3 million people in Lebanon flee. So I came to Beirut in the meaning of this enormous escalation. And we see that southern Beirut is, is, is going up in flames. There is heavy bombing. We call my U.S. OCHA, U.N. colleague, who we have embedded with the Israeli Defense Forces in Tel Aviv. And he says, yes, there will now be a three-hour lull in the bombing, because I asked, can I go? Just so we went down, and I saw for myself. So from that place, I, I, I say two things that got a lot of global coverage. Number one. This bombing cannot continue because they are civilian targets, primarily, primarily civilian targets. It has to stop. And, and the hundreds of thousands of refugees is an example of that. At the same time, I said, Hezbollah's cowardly blending into the civilian population, to have the exact quote of the moment, which the Hezbollah people around it didn't very much like. I mean, it, it, of course, it meant that it was a jackpot in the sense that both sides became very angry. But it helped bring an international community to say, this has to stop as it is now. An international force went in. Hezbollah stopped, stopped to, uh, to do their missiles, and the Israelis withdrew. And today, in Lebanon, there is an international force, and there is hope to bring some stability to the area. Now, um, I want in the, in the next one, actually, next one is, 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 is the, just the building of a, a photo image of 
our annual meeting between the Secretary General of the UN and the President of the United States. It takes place every um, morning of the start of the General Assembly, which is opened by the Secretary General. Then the President of Brazil, for some reason, I think it's because B is early on in the alphabet. They come with the head of state. And the United States is not supposed to have the number one speech, but they have then the second because they're the host country. So, um, uh, the US-UN relations are crucial to the UN, which cannot function without support from the US, the biggest contributor. I think they're also very important for the US to have a UN that functions. And of course, the low point was Iraq. And I don't want to speak more about Iraq. Too, too much has been said, and it's very clear what was done and the mistakes that were, were done. However, let me mention some of the successes of US-UN cooperation. And one of them is Liberia. I mean, Liberia was founded by freed slaves from America. That's why its, <laughs> its name is Liberia. Um, it was a place embroiled in the, in the most terrible civil war possible. Children were specializing in killing each other as child soldiers. Uh, Charles Taylor was embezzling the whole population. Now, uh, a UN force was established consisting of African and Asian countries. They went in, they disarmed the militias, and they established uh, some degree of stability there. And today, there is peace, there is progress, there is human rights, there is economic growth. And there is a wonderful democratically elected president, female president, called Ellen Sirleaf Jones. She is um, uh, she's a consequence of this operation, which costed $1 billion a year. $1 billion, a lot of money. But imagine, I mean, the U.S. and the U.S. contribution to that is, by the assessed scale, 26%. So it costed the U.S. $260 million, and the U.S. was the leader. That wouldn't have been an operation without the U.S. $260 million, which was a cost every year for four years, is half a day of expenses for the U.S. this year in Iraq. So it's not a, an enormous sum in terms of, 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 of foreign policy uh, spending. And it created peace. Just like the U.S. led the U.N. effort in southern Sudan, where there is peace at the moment, where myself escorted hundreds, of th uh, um, hundreds and, and thousands of refugees home. Or, to put, as a case, the tsunami. I mean, the tsunami was one of the biggest challenges of the international community. We would not have been able to show humanity at our best when nature was at its worst if it hadn't been for the US military, which came in. And I remember. You know, it's particularly cru crucial at the point I was coordinating all of this. We got the um, U.S. Uh, says Abram Lincoln 
uh, that gave 50, that's the, that's the uh, meeting, and here's the um, tsunami. Uh, Lincoln came with 52 helicopters when they, they were the most needed. This was the destruction. Nobody really died from lack of relief in the tsunami, from starvation, from epidemic disease, because the world came together, as we should. We, uh, we had help from uh, uh, Bill Clinton and others to even rebuild. U.S. corporations gave a lot in this work. And similarly, in Pakistan, there was 3.3 million people without a roof, 3.3 million people without a roof after an earthquake, which came four weeks before the Himalayan winter. Again, when the spring came, we had a survey, nutritional survey, mortality survey. Nobody died from lack of relief. It would never, ever have happened before. In all previous generations, we would say, this is an impossible task. Let's see how many people will survive when spring comes. Because this is when the world, the world is at its greatest, because we work together. Here's an image from Ivory Coast, though. Western Ivory Coast, where our uh, headquarters were as much looted, torched, act of terror as in Baghdad. It's just that nobody heard. Nobody seemed to care much. It was one of those neglected places. I went there <clears throat> to see for myself and to speak with, with the victims of the campaign, which was not only the, the, the aid workers, but was first and foremost the Burkina Bear people who came from north, who were seen as aliens by the presidential president and his party, and his jeunes patriotes, which are the militias. And these people had to flee. I met them in a, in a school. There were 7,000 people here. There were uh, tens of thousands altogether. And I said, we bring you relief. And, and, I, and I will like to hear what you have to say to me, because I'm now going to the Security Council to tell about the situation here in Ivory Coast. And then one of them very quietly said afterwards, thank you for the relief, but you must know that tonight they will come and loot everything once more, and they will rape the women, and they will kidnap our young men. This is exactly the same as with Darfur, and there are people here who work hard on the Darfur case. This is taken from the helicopter as we flew in the first time, I was long blocked from, from coming by the government to Darfur. Here, here we come in a helicopter and we land on the Chadian side. It's the most desolate place possible. It's where the people fled to. We gave them relief. All of the food came from America and it, it saved their lives. But these people asked us in 2004, well, when do you think we can go back home? And I said, I think very soon, because now I've told the world how bad it is. I've told about your suffering, and I told how the ethnic cleansing campaign has been going on. 
They're still here. In the exact same place, only they are many more now than they were in 2004. And one of the reasons is, of course, there is no political and security effort to fix it commensurate with the humanitarian one. And of course, the, the, the political work has to be on many levels. These people I'm meeting here are very angry with me. They are the Masalit tribe sheiks. They came because they said, you're only giving to the Fur people, the farmers, as they call them, which are the, the, the black uh, 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 subsistence farmer tribes. You don't give anything to us. We're victims of, of, of uh, desertification, of um, climate change. Our cattle, our sheep, our goats, and our camels are dying. So I, <laughs> I'm pretty blunt back and saying, listen, you sent people into these Janjaweed militias that caused the whole horrendous catastrophe. But of course, some of them are also right. I mean, there are among these very bad people, mass murderers, but among them, there are also very clear victims of a horrendous situation, and the people are dying. Now, of course, the civilian population is totally caught in the middle here. This uh, widow in red told the following story to me as we found her in a health post, which clearly the government want, did not want us to go to. She said the following. In my village, Sirba, we asked repeatedly for help. We knew we would be attacked. Nobody came to our relief, not the African Union, certainly not the government, and, and of course the UN had only unarmed humanitarian workers. So one night they came, they come into the hut, they put the guns to my children who sat in my lap. They asked for money. I said, I have no money, I'm a poor widow, as you know. And then they shot the children, who miraculously survived because they were brought by some of the elders uh, from the tribe to this health station where doctors of the same regime who gave the guns to the militias who attacked these poor people saved the lives of the children with the medicine that we gave from the UN. You know, this is, it cannot continue like that. We cannot continue in a situation where we keep people alive until they're massacred. It's, it's, it's Srebrenica all over again we organized Norwegian convoys to Srebrenica every day until the Serbs went in and killed each and every man in the whole and, and, and many of the women and children in that village. Now, of course, finally, we can, we can now use technology to go anywhere, to actually do anything we want if we have the political will. And we can confront people like the infamous, horrific leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, who I, I was the first and only, I think, so far international representative to meet this man. He's on, well, the good guy is on the, on the right, and the bad guy is on the left. That is Joseph Kony.
He wanted, he said, to rule northern Uganda after the Ten Commandments. He called his movement the Lord's Resistance Army. They kidnapped 20,000 children. And they proved that terror works. Because they, they, they were, for 18 years they were going. Two million people were displaced. I went there because at the point we had gotten su support for a talks between the government and them, and they, it had led to a cessation of hostilities. I went there to do th two things, say, if you do not attack for food, we will give you food in these places, but you have to sit tight and wait for the negotiations to succeed. And the second thing, which I am saying exactly on this photo, is we know, we know of each and every massacre you've done, each and every act of violence you have done. Know that we're watching you. So uh, the permanent, a permanent ceasefire was agreed two weeks ago, and hundreds of thousands are returning as we speak. There are several here who, who, who know northern Uganda well and has been there. Final point, um, you know, there are many bad leaders in the world. There are many bad places. I mentioned Darfur. Uh, I, 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 there are terrible places like Zimbabwe. I had some, an epic uh, clash with um, Mugabe, and I think it's important that the UN confront him and his government what they're doing. However, the UN is not able to change it. And nor is the UK and the US who has taken the lead in, in really telling him and the world how bad it's going in Zimbabwe. Why is it not going to happen? Because the UK, supported by the US during this Cold War, was the ones supporting despicable Rhodesian white racist regime. So it is helping Mugabe. It is helping Mugabe in a sense that South Africa, which should be leveraged into changing things in Zimbabwe, steps back and says, no, we cannot jump on the side of those who once was behind apartheid in criticizing a former liberation leader. It's a little bit like Darfur, where China got off the hook. China should have let the pressure on Sudan, on Darfur. China, India, Malaysia, Pakistan, four biggest trading partners, and Saudi Arabia and the Arab countries who have political and cultural affinity. So again and again, I see the wrong, the, the wrong nation pushes the right course at the wrong time and place. Only if we get this Security Council, where I and others have come again and again to put things on the table for action, only when we get sort of China, the United States, the European Union, Russia, South Africa, India, to meet around the table, which means several of these have to get permanent seat. I mean, India is not even on the table. It's going to be a superpower soon. It, it will be the most popular country on earth soon, and they don't even have a seat at the table. Um, it's only when we get predictable action we will really be able to change. My point, I've gone over my time now, is however that 
It's not true that the world is worse. The world is better for a very clear majority of us. There is 50% more peace, less war now than in 1989. 1989, there were 10 genocides. Now there may be one or two. At that time, there were 10 to 20 military coups per year. Now there's two to four. At that time, there were 20 million children dying from preventable disease every year. Now it's less than 10 million. But still, that's why the title of the book, still, you know, it's, it is incomprehensible in my view that in a world where there are 2 billion rich people or extremely rich people, myself and yourself included, that we let, you know, 1 billion people still go hungry to bed today without having enjoyed clean drinking water today, and they will have to survive on less than a dollar a day tomorrow. Of course we can fix that. I mean, of course, two billion people can lift one billion people up. I mean, two billion, if two billion people have more than $100 a day, they can lift up that billion which is living on one dollar a day. So that's the whole, uh, the whole challenge. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. sure we have some questions from the floor, and we do have a microphone here, so if you'd raise your hand and keep it up for a minute. Anybody else have questions as you... Good. Start right there. Jan, I had an opportunity to uh, go to Kalak, Thailand uh, after the tsunami and do some work there, and one of the things we found was that there was a... Uh, even, uh, even though there was a lot of great work being done, there was a serious lack of integration between the different agencies yep. uh, that were there, uh, different nonprofit organizations. Uh, the New York Times in November of 2006 published an article, and one of the things they pointed out was the serious lack of integration all across the tsunami-affected uh, areas. And then just recently in Afghanistan, uh, there have been some reports coming back again, the same kind of thing. It seems to be a very difficult thing to integrate our relief efforts, our outreach efforts. Do you have any suggestions and comments around uh, those issues? No, I mean, hey, of course, you're absolutely right. The, it, it was, in a way, the flip side of, I mean, the, the world came out at its best in the tsunami. Uh, there were, we, we raised $13 billion. I mean, three times more for the tsunami victims than for all other wars and disasters combined in the world. However, there were 400 organizations descending on Aceh, Indonesia, and an equal number of organizations descending on Sri Lanka. There were, fortunately, a bit fewer in, in Thailand, which also had smaller needs. I would estimate that to be at least 200 too, man, too many on both places. I mean, they, what's the right number? Well, in Darfur, which is arguably a, an, 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 a word, I mean, there are four million infected people in, in now in Darfur, four million. In the tsunami, one million were, had everything wiped away, and two to three other millions were indirectly affected. In Darfur, there are 80 organizations. I think that's, that's a, good, a good kind of a number. And in my view, it's very well organized. Maybe it's too well organized in a, in a sense. 
Why too well organized? Because we keep people alive to a degree that it becomes an alibi for lack of political and security action, in my view. A little bit the same thing with the safe areas of Bosnia. Now, the tsunami evaluation report, which was very critical of this lack of coordination, was initiated by my office. And it basically said, number one, there should be an authorization for international organization to be able to go to a place like that. Very controversial. Because it means your local church cannot send you, you know, with a million dollars and a video camera to places anymore. Uh, you know, uh, you, you would have to be authorized to go and do this kind of work. I wouldn't want to be police that, but I think perhaps the host governments could do that. And secondly, we have now, in my time in office, organized all work in 10 different clusters, water and sanitation, logistics, telecommunications, food, shelter, protection. And now you have to join one of these with an identifiable leader, which is UNICEF, for example, for water and sanitation. UNHCR, High Commission for Refugees, for shelter in wartime. The Red Cross, for shelter in natural disasters and so on. And I think that, that helps. And then we all need to police that because there's, this is no place for amateurs, you know. As, as, as you know, this, if you make soap, you make good soap, you make bad soap. You're a lecturer, you are, you are giving a good lecture or a bad lecture to nice people like you. But if you do bad work as a relief worker, you measure that in lives lost or lives won. So that's, I, I think we have to be much tougher, actually, with quality control. Lots of questions right up here in the front. Isn't it uh, essential that the concept of sovereignty of nations be reduced so that uh, leaders who engage or allow genocide or uh, mass murder or prevent uh, aid to their populations know that they will lose territory uh, or freedom? No, you're, uh, in my view, uh, you're right. Too many places, I mean, it's like China with Tibet or, uh, or, or uh, you know, w whatever with, uh, with whatever. I mean, the United States with the Somosas, Nicaragua in, 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 in the 1960s and 70s, the argument was always non-interference in international affairs. A, a dictator has to ask for help uh, for the UN and others to, to do something in his or her country. Let's change now, in my view, with the responsibility to protect decision of world leaders in 2005, where they basically say, if a leader is not, or a government is not able to protect its own citizens against uh, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, or ethnic cleansing, or even perpetrates it, we are willing to take collective action, they say in this. Um, has things on paper, so on paper it looks good. Has it changed in practice? No, not yet. But of course, I mean, uh, you, you may want to speak to your, your Senate. I mean, they, this, they, they do not want to ratify agreements to have this International Criminal Court, which is supposed then to take a Joseph Kony or a, uh, or a Charles Taylor or a Milosevic 
and put them before international tribunals. I think that's a good thing. But, I mean, the U.S. Senate feels, oh, one day maybe an American will be there. So we're against the whole thing. So it's not easy. Your question in the back. If you'd hold your question to the microphone, it's in your hand. Thank you. Um, my name is Celestin. I'm from Rwanda and uh, spent time in Rwanda, Eastern Congo, in Darfur. And uh, I have two questions. Uh, one is, uh, what do you think about the situation in the Congo? Hmm. And uh, we all know that there are some genocide kind of going on in Eastern Congo. Hmm. So what do we propose as a solution? Uh, my second question is, um, as a result of the genocide in Darfur, and uh, probably after the signing of uh, the comprehensive, comprehensive peace agreement in South, southern Sudan, uh, what do you see as a consequence of letting the Darfur situation continue on, on the peace in southern Sudan? Thank you. Mm. Two, two very important issues. I mean, let me take uh, the Congo the first. I, uh, I, I skipped it uh, here because I'm very interested in whether the the PowerPoint would make it or not, but I always make a big point on the Congo. Why? Because it is the biggest loss of life on our watch. And I, I, I want to say that in America in a way, because it's, it's you know, this French-speaking part of Africa has lost five million lives. It's actually the American International Rescue Committee who did these mortality surveys with hundreds of doctors in, in the Congo over several years. So 1,200 people have on average died per day from 1998 to now, basically. With, with, it peaked uh, uh, during the worst of the war between 2000 and 2003. So, as a Norwegian with a, with a country with a population of 5 million, I hope you would all notice if we all perished. I, I really hope so. I mean, in, in, uh, even in Texas, you would see Norway up to, towards the North Pole is gone. So why didn't we react with the Congo, you know? Uh, I mean, you're from Rwanda. Uh, Rwanda was one of the worst horrific genocides of our generation. 800,000 to a million people died. So five million died in the Congo. I mean, it was even worse. And, and we didn't really notice. So there is some structural discrimination built in. I mean, Africa gets too little attention, and non-English-speaking Africa gets even less, uh, less attention. Belgium is interested in, uh, in, in, in Congo. They were the, the ruthless colonial power once. Belgium is not enough, really, to, uh, to, to, to be interested in the Congo. On, um, well, but I also should say, the UN has done, however, been able to turn things in the right direction. I mean, it's not, it's not hopeless. When I came to Congo in 2003 for the first time, there were four million refugees. Now there is one million. All provinces but three have vastly improved uh, security. Why? Because there is a UN peacekeeping force, again, 26% of that is, is funded by the U.S. It has African and Asian, some European forces, and it has, it has 
changed things around and is going now undisputably in the, in the, in the right direction. The other question on, on Sudan. If it continues to escalate again in Darfur, as it is now of late, and now it's, it's become much more complicated, 20 different factions on the rebel side, a government which then ruthlessly armed these horrific Genevieve militias seem to have lost completely control in, in, with, the, with that side as well, which is typical. It, it's easier to say, start pillaging, looting, raping, than to say, stop, uh, stop all of this and, and become you know, nice people again. It's very difficult. So it is totally out of control uh, there. And a big danger for the Comprehensive Peace Agreement North-South. So also the South is now, may have this negative spillover from the war in the West. I know you addressed some of the changes earlier, but what, if any, priority change did you see the United Nations as an organization needing to make to face uh, future global challenges? Well, there are, there are like three things that really have to happen. Number one is, I already mentioned that, it needs to be really representative of the world as it is in 2008 and not as the world was in 1945. You know, I, I, I recognize in Germany and Japan lost that war, but it is, uh, we're now in 2008, I mean, it's, and it's, it's crazy. Japan pays, U.S. pays between 22 and 26 percent of the budget, depending on what kind of operation it is. Japan pays 19 percent, and they're not even at the table. I mean, they're, they're nearly, uh, nearly the biggest donor. Uh, Germany is by far the biggest country in, in Europe, the, by far the biggest donor in Europe, and they're not on the table. And it's even worse that India is not there, Brazil is not there, South Africa is, is Nigeria, the biggest country of, Af of Africa, more important for peace, prosperity in Africa than either of the Western or, or, or for that even the Asian countries. So, secondly, I think we have to recognize that this, in this multipolar world, everybody has to be accountable. And, I, and I, what I, I hope is that the various countries then specialize in doing the right things. So China should have been held accountable for Sudan much earlier, because they're the, by far the biggest you know, investor there, extracting most of the oil and so on. Um, just like the U.S. has to stay with the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, not, not only every last year of a presidency, but throughout uh, several presidencies, so that the Israelis and Palestinians who deserve to live in peace uh, with, with each other can be guided you know, firmly towards a, a durable peace agreement. So, um, and thirdly, we need to be much more effective and efficient in the UN. It is not true that the UN is very corrupt. It is actually surprisingly uncorrupt given these uh, very comp complex rules. What oil for food scandal showed was that the member states of the UN uh, let Saddam get on with embezzling the whole world. Um, but it was like five people were found uh, enriching themselves, perhaps a little bit, and two of them have been acquitted in US courts. What was shown was that the UN was very inefficient, not corrupt, inefficient. 
It takes a year to fill a post. The Secretary General cannot move posts within the system because the countries are sitting on him and, and following his every move. And you have to, you know, you have to do in, 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 in full plenary every, every single administrative thing. It's wrong. We have to be much more effective and efficient as an organization. Take a last question right there. Your remarks are um, amazingly refreshing as a young person who has been raised with a prevailing conventional wisdom that what we do doesn't make a difference, that it's too hard, it's too big of a problem to overcome. 50% reduction in wars, genocides, bigger reduction in child mortality, morbidity, incredible. Hmm. As my generation takes the reins and moves to reduce those numbers hmm. even further, maybe even get some of those Millennium Development Goals accomplished. Absolutely. What are the new types of paradigms, of techniques that we're going to need to utilize to be sure to get to those people who are members of the smaller genocides, the stuff that we don't see right now that's not even in the international community's eyes? Because hmm. it seems like we've gotten the big ones down. I mean, responding to the tsunami, wow. Hmm. So many people over such a large geographic area. What's going to be the tools that we need to use to get to those specific areas and find out about those specific areas? Thank you. No, I mean, uh, <laughs> very well put. I mean, and I think you're, you're a representative of a generation which is, you know, uh, where the sky is the limit, really. You know, my generation, if we, if we could do all of those fantastic things, I mean, half asleep and, you know, half-hearted as we were, what, what couldn't you, you what, what cannot you uh, people do? Of course, there's also a very strong obli obligation on several levels. Number one, don't think that we are, you know, bankrupting ourselves now in, in generosity. The average rich country, this one included, gives 0.2% of gross national income in foreign civilian assistance. Zero point, I mean, I never read in the Holy Scriptures, any of them, keep 99.8% to yourself and give, you know, 0.2% uh, to, to these guys. Never read that. So, um, so the goal is... 0.7%, there are three, four countries, I won't mention whom, who are already in 1%. And, you know, we don't even notice uh, that, that 1%. If everybody gave 0.7%, we would have more than enough money. I mean, because we would have, you know, a quadrupling of the investment, number one. Second uh, is we need to really invest in a capacity of global, regional sub-regional capacity to solve things in a political and security manner. And in other words, I think um, we all, Europeans, North Americans, Japanese, invest a lot more in having Africa do good things within Africa. So, it, I mean, it was very wrong. I mean, how, how come we declared, well, you declared genocide, we said different words, in Darfur, and then the African Union force couldn't really fund its salaries in this tiny force. They couldn't get one helicopter and so on. I mean, there has to be a systematic effort of investing there. And then, <clears throat> finally, technology has to be used much more effectively and efficiently. You're working with the Grameen Bank here, Lucy. I mean, Grameen Bank is, you know, it's, it's amazing. In, in, in Bangladesh, they went from having no phone system 
anywhere outside of the capital, and suddenly every little window sits with the, you know, a, a GSM uh, mobile phone that she rents out to the men in the, in the village. And, and suddenly they're online with the world. So you can do a lot of things also with, with, uh, with technology. Uh, so I'm an optimist, really. Uh, I think we can do this. What's the biggest challenge for your generation? That's my final, final point. It's climate change. By far, it's not war. Uh, I mean, the, those remaining wars we can fix. In the Middle East, it will be fixed. Even Iraq, it, it will be. Climate change is a, a much bigger kind of a thing. So just ex expect a bill of trillions of dollars actually coming out of the Copenhagen meeting at the end of the year for mitigation, which is less garbage out in the atmosphere from all of us. And the other one is adaptation for those who already live in deserts and in hurricane zones that are getting worse and worse. But even that one we will fix if we, and can fix if we want to. So I thank you for your attention. Thank you, sir. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.